0: This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now, one thing science and religion should agree upon is that there's one world. But science and religion approach this one world differently. Science attempts to describe the world as an object. They attempt to understand it from the outside in. Religion, on the other hand, tends to approach the world from the inside out. Although some religions tend to objectify symbols of spirituality, such as Jesus on the cross, the ultimate purpose is to gain an uplifting of an inner experience. Religion... We want to, in religion, we want to connect with the divine internally, but there's still one world. And this is something that has always puzzled me because in the case of religion, one question all of us have asked, either quietly or in groups, is, if there's one God, then why do some religions treat others as blood enemies? Uh, As we're doing this interview here, um, with David Lieberman, who I will introduce in a minute. Hamas has just attacked Israel. It's something that we cannot ignore since the title of this show is transcendental Judaism. So why did this occur? Don't the Muslims and the Jews pray to the same God? What is going on here? And this is, this is a question that really underscores Um, the conflict we have, at least in one level of our society. Now, in this show, I'm not going to try to answer this extremely difficult problem head on, but we're going to talk about David's new book and see if we can at least find a way to open and broaden the discussion on these, on these intractable problems. Uh, on today's show, I'm happy to have David Lieberman, as I mentioned. He's just published a new book entitled Transcendental Judaism, Enlivening the Eternal Within to Uplift Ourselves and Our World. And and as I mentioned, based upon current events, we're going to le- need a lot of uplifting to deal with these on- ongoing struggles, and so maybe we could start making some progress here. Now, uh, David, uh, he uh, was raised in a Reformed Jewish household. He's been a long student of the Torah. He's a spiritual director of a um, organization in Arizona called the Valley Bait Mirage, uh, which is committed to a pluralistic, forward-looking Jewish learning. Uh, interestingly, he has been a teacher and a management uh, consultant for the past 35 years and lives in Arizona. David, thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you're doing well.
1: Philip, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So uh, as I mentioned before the show, I have read your book, and uh, it's one of these books that I would have to recommend because it's a mind opener, and those are the best kinds of books. And sort of as we ease into uh, the book and and um, this show, uh, maybe we could start with the basic question of what led you to write this book.
1: Good question. Uh, in the beginning of the book, I talk about uh, a uh, a transcendental and a, a spiritual experience that I had uh, the very first time, the very first day that I learned how to meditate, and it was an awe inspiring experience. Uh, I don't. Perhaps we'll. I can I can go through the experience a little bit later but it was one that opened me up to having a real sense of the unity of the universe, feeling like I was part of a greater whole. Now that in itself didn't cause me to write the book because that was a secular experience. uh, And this is a book about Judaism. But a couple decades later, I started to study Judaism in a little bit more detail, studied Torah. Many of your listeners will know Torah just is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And and the other texts generally are referred to uh, uh, as an extension as studying Torah. And it was a very interesting experience for me uh, initially, the words made intellectual sense to me to some extent. And and uh, there's contradictions in Torah, and Jews are taught when they study Torah to argue and discuss and, and um, try to make sense of what's going on. But then after about having studied Torah for about a dozen years, Philip, what happened was one day the words on the page started to jump out at me they had a very deep and close meaning to me uh like when in like when jacob was uh going on a trip and he laid down to rest he put his head on a rock and he woke up in the morning and he said uh gee uh uh had i known that you know god is in this place And I didn't realize that. And that may seem like a nothing statement to you, but to me, my regular experiences of this transcendence that I had been practicing during my meditation, now for dozens of years, I all of a sudden realized that at any time, I have a sense That God is here with me. And I put those two things together. My initial experience and ongoing experience of that sense of God is here with me. And then the words of Torah said the same thing. And when that happened, I said, something's going on here. I've got to learn more about what's really happening. What do these words mean? What does this experience of spirituality really mean? How does it carry with me in such a real way? And how can I, if it turns out to be something worthwhile, can I share this with other people? And that's what caused me to write the book.
0: Yeah, well, it's really uh, interesting what drives people to want to endure the marathon task of putting their thoughts on a piece of paper and publishing it. You know, I went through that myself, mm-hmm. and it's almost as if it has to happen. And it's almost as if, you know, there is some, whether it's inspiration, whether it's a voice in your head, or it's something you cannot um, ignore. And I remember in my own case was mm-hmm. I, basically, I basically quit a job and took a year and a half off to put these thoughts on a piece of paper, and it's really it's really it's really good to hear other other people going through it and the i I really think that what you've done here is is really make something approachable um now I don't want to assume sort of the the knowledge of the listener, and so when we talk about reform Judaism what do we compare ourselves to what do you i mean i don't want to use the word orthodox but i want to use the word maybe standard or or common what does reformed judaism do that's different than let's say the standard teachings of Juda, of of judaism
1: okay uh- standard is not really the greatest word to use but i can answer the question uh reform judaism is more on what i would just say the the liberal side of judaism where individuals are given the the freedom the opportunity to interpret uh, interpret the jewish laws follow the commandments Uh, many people Practically all of your listeners will have heard of "quote the Ten Commandments," but in fact, there are hundreds of commandments. Uh, the Hebrew word is mitzvot, or singular a mitzvah, uh, <clears throat> in the in the Torah. And Reformed Jews seek out and follow the ones that feel meaningful to them on a personal basis, and they live their lives uh in in a meaningful way according to the uh according to a choice they make with regards to how closely they follow the commandments so that's more on the liberal side okay as we move along the continuum you know there we can throw out names like conservative and orthodox and but basically it just it just moves more to the right in terms of 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 uh of uh groups of people following the commandments more closely uh following the traditions more closely uh and doing it less on an individual basis and more on a group basis uh like that so
0: I, well, I, well th- that's good yeah yeah that that's good because you know I I'm, I'm a lawyer in training and I've always thought there were similarities between interpreting a document such as the US Constitution and interpreting a base religious text. And it's it's different, but the similarities are, do you read the words as being engraved in stone for all time, or do you apply your current knowledge, understanding, experience, to interpret the words in a present context? And that is... Uh, something that it plays out right now in politics. You have, you have the strict constructionists and you have the more liberal interpretations. And yeah. it's, it's a similar, it's a similar thing. Now it, it gets into a topic in your book that I find very interesting, which is, which is this whole concept of, of, of evolution. And we're really talking about a spiritual evolution here. Um, you talk about, uh, the, the the Jews' evolving interpretation of the Torah, okay, and, and so let's stop there. What what do you mean by by that? The, the your use of the of the term evolving um, in the context of Jews' understanding of the Torah or of God? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Actually, I can mean a couple of things, and I do refer to. A couple of things when I talk about the evolution. One of them is that the, the, uh, the commandments, again, there are, there are hundreds of them. Uh, in biblical times, and when I mean biblical times, I'm talking about when the temple stood in Jerusalem. Well, there were two temples. Uh, one was, the first was destroyed as was the second, and the second was destroyed in the year 72 of the, uh, the year 70 of the common era. And during the, during biblical times when the temple stood, there were certain of the hundreds of commandments that tended to be, they tended to stand out and, and feel more meaningful to the people. And m- many of those commandments had to do with animal sacrifices and other rites, R I T E S around, uh, around the performance of, of of different commandments. And again, just to paste upon the sociology of the time of thousands of years ago, uh, those type of activities felt meaningful to people. And so they tended to stand out. Now with the destruction by the Romans of the second temple in the year 70, We moved into another era of Judaism beyond biblical Judaism, and we're in that era now. We call it rabbinic Judaism. And what we had to do was figure out how are we going to follow the commandments and stay close to God because we could no longer do the animal sacrifices because those are only allowed to be done in the temple. And so other of the commandments, other of the mitzvot, came to the forefront and evolved not that we weren't doing them before but they came to the forefront just to the change due to the change of circumstances and these are commandments regarding prayer and acts of charity and repentance and study of the torah and things like that and so um we just finished uh uh the uh, holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, where we where we ask for forgiveness for our sins and try to make a clean slate for the next year. This is a very meaningful uh, type following the Mitzvot in rabbinic times. Again, not that we didn't do it before, but now it's elevated. Now we evolve into a new era, which I go out on a limb. Uh of course there's no scientific proof for any of this, but I say we could be we could be uh entering yet another era of Judaism that nobody's heard of until I wrote this book, <laughs> called the transcendental Judaism. And what do I mean by that? Uh what I mean by that, and I'm gonna to try to make this short because there, there's so much to say about it, but Judaism has always taught that we understand and follow uh and internalize the commandments at multiple levels and actually it's at four levels at the very literal or plain level we just read the words and there and and they we understand what they say uh and that's called the level of pshat and we can also understand the meets vote and follow them at another level that is referred to as remez, which is, it's a hint. It's a, and maybe an allegory is told. Uh, and Remes comes with a feel, with a sense of a feeling. There's some emotion involved as we read the very same words, but we interpret it at a different level, more of an emotional level. And the, and the third level is called Drash. Uh, which is more the intellectual level, uh, where we maybe make some analytical sense, uh, of, of what's going on. Uh, and I, I can give example. A- any, any mitzvah can be, uh, uh, interpreted at any level, but some to me tend to lead them, lend themselves to other levels. Okay. And then there's the mystical level which in Hebrew we say sod. And that's the level that sort of goes beyond emotion, beyond thought, and we understand it sort of just deep in our souls. And I'm saying that traditionally the mitzvot have been followed in biblical and in rabbinic times more at the level of shot the plain level, and Remez, the emotional level, and Drash, the intellectual level. And I'm saying we may have an opportunity now to internalize and understand the mitzvot more at the mystical level, in, in a different way, in an evolutionary way, um, where it touches us beyond our normal senses, uh, the level of sod. I call this transcendental Judaism and it's another type of evolution. So besides the type of evolution where different meets vote tend to come to the surface, there's also the evolution in the way and at the level, which with, with which we internalize and understand the meets vote. And although some people I will, admit, although I typically don't, will perform the mitzvah or a mitzvah at the, what I will call lower levels, the traditional levels, they may still sense that feeling of awe, that sense of transcendence, that sense of oneness that I talked about at the beginning of our talk. I don't know how often that happens, but through the meditative quieting of the mind, uh we have a better chance of experience experiencing the mitzvot at the level of sod. And I talk in the book about Jewish sages centuries ago that used different types of meditations in order to internalize. Experience that spirituality and that sense of transcendence, uh, through different meditative techniques. So I hope that wasn't yeah, too long no, to answer, no. but it gave a couple of different, yeah, couple that, of different perspectives on what I mean by evolution.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's good. Now I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to, to simplify this from my, from my own perspective. And it really goes to what I said in the beginning about objectifying the source or the subject matter of worship or mm. spirituality. And mm. I find a lot in various religions and, you know, we could we could sort of guess which ones they are, uh, where the object where the the object of worship is worship as an other thing as something mm-hmm. to curry favor with mm-hmm. um, as, as, and, and then it, it, it devolves and we've all seen it. And, and I will say this, it devolves sometimes in a lip service where somebody recites a prayer 53 times, they don't know really what they said, but they feel like if they said it, then therefore they're going to be favored in some mm. way. yeah And then you have um, the integration, more of the integration of the teachings um You know, inside yourself where you start embodying the purposes of spirituality, of the religion in the first place. And, you know, if if there's that's another continuum. I mean, we know for a fact in all religions, uh, and I would I would probably say more so in Western than Eastern religions, uh, there is there tends to be an objectification of the object of worship as the other. Waiting for the other to come and save you as if he or she is going to, uh, you know, wave a magic wand and you're going to be a better person just instantaneously without, without, um, sort of absorbing the teachings. So, mm-hmm. so that, that is, so that's why I like the transcendental aspect. Um, the other thing though that I think is, is really a difficult question here, um, is, what I find is that most uh, religions, they're, they try to be true to the underlying purpose. I think ultimately that's the goal. And some of them are more conservative. They say, well, we better, you know, and, and let me just give an example, the Koran. Um, mm-hmm. They try, you know, the object is, is to do exactly what this book says, because that's the way to remain faithful to it. Uh but your view and i would agree with this is that you know if the underlying purpose is ultimately to be good people to to treat others uh as as your brothers or as a family then then if some words in an old book say you're supposed to do something different uh but the underlying purpose is brotherhood then maybe your interpretation does have to evolve um and and so I think that's another problem we have in today's in today's society, where we have sort of a mixture of people all over the place. The um, You know, between the strict constructionists and the evolving literal interp- or liberal interpretation, um, and that's part of part of the way of the world, um, the it, it leads it leads to um, a question, which is who who is the audience for your book? Who do you see as the audience?
1: I see my primary audience for the book are liberal Jews, maybe reformed Jews, who don't really deeply internalize the, the vote, the commandments. They don't necessarily follow them but they have some sense, they're looking for sense, some sense of spirituality, and they're wondering, where am I going to find that? And, you know, we know that a lot of Jews start to look to Eastern religions for that, right? right. We've heard the term ju, right? <laughs> the, or Hindu, yeah. jew right? The, <laughs> yeah. uh, people who are looking looking outside for that sense of spirituality. And my book uh, goes into the theology, and we haven't even talked about this yet, which actually is in support of your book The Collapse of Materialism because I talk about how you know our material world evolves from no-thingness, from nothingness. Right. Right. And uh, <clears throat> uh, my book demonstrates through both uh, traditional Jewish texts and mystical Jewish texts, Kabbalah, that there is that sense of oneness, that sense of transcendence that is deeply built into the Jewish religion and Jewish tradition. And so let's look at those liberal Jews who have been used to interpreting the mitzvot at a certain level but it isn't connecting so much with them, and they start looking elsewhere. And I'm saying, no, you don't have to look elsewhere. There is a very deep spiritual tradition in Judaism uh, in our own backyard where you can go uh, to gain spiritual fulfillment. To me, that's my main audience. And and then, it, it, you know, it can spread out from there.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think that uh, the audience could and should be broader and that that was why i asked the question because i think that there's there's a there's a good number of people that i that i know and have met over the years that really even if they were raised in a certain religion they're 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 questioning the uh, the underlying tenets, or they're questioning whether it's right for them and i think there's a lot of mystery uh, and misunderstanding, uh, among the religions, uh, over what they really believe in. And, and, you know, we tend to, and this gets into your, your, uh, non, your, uh, duality issue, which, uh, topic, which we'll get into in a second here. But it's almost as if, uh, it's good for, uh, public perception if there's feuds between religions you know instead of folks looking for common grounds there's a lot of folks who want to um, have this 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 eternal feud um, conflict and i think the transcendental uh, aspect here really opens the door to me uh, to some common ground i mean clearly there's an overlap with Eastern religions. I mean, I, I think, and, and, you know, when, when you have, um, a discussion about, you know, God is within us. We're the fulfillment of God, the expression of God. Um, it, it's our true self. It sounds so much like Atman, which is the, the personal self in, um, Hinduism. Uh, the goal is to join with the universal self, which is Brahman and uh, and to experience moksha uh and and so and i frankly don't see it going in any other way i don't see if i don't see it going any other way um because if if there is any truth to spirituality to the divine then there is something beyond the material world and there's some unity i mean there's plenty of great i mean most of the great religious texts uh Point towards a, a unity of humankind or a, yes. a, a unity of spirit. Or of God, And so, and so what you're saying, and I think, and I like maybe you could talk about this, what you're saying is that, you know, it's, it's a goal here to uh, incorporate or internalize that oneness into your daily life, which yes. is, which is critically important. So, yeah. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? And you know, I haven't asked you about the religious texts yet because there's so many of them. <laughs> but but um, I'm sure there's some that that uh, that you use as uh, as as inspirational sources for that. So, mm-hmm. so what are your thoughts about? So, so why don't you talk about this duality, non duality, and you know that aspect of of your uh, of your thinking? Sure
1: well you know in the Hebrew Bible you know we start out you know by saying that um you know in 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 the beginning God created the you know created the the earth and uh god you know that happened from nothing so so everything you know began from from no thing, and mystical Judaism, which is often referred to as Kabbalah, talks about <clears throat> How this nothingness, of course, in spiritual terms, not in scientific terms, in religious terms, how this nothingness manifests into our existing world. And duality was introduced during this process. I talk about in the book, uh, this, the concept of the ten, uh, I'm going to use the Hebrew word, spherot. Uh, spherot just means qualities or levels. Uh, and when we move, uh, when, when, when creation moved from no-thingness, um, which again in Judaism we call the ain sof. Ain sof just means without end. Uh, so, uh, from no-thingness to thingness, um, it 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 began to obtain uh, qualities uh and we introduced duality and and like that <clears throat> and there was a great uh, 20th century um jewish academician and uh, Kabbalist named Gershom Sholem Gershom Sholem uh and he wrote a book and made a beautiful, beautiful statement in it. He said, if you view the manifest universe and all its differences simply as a tree, right? Because we we've got leaves in a tree. We've got branches. We have thorns. We have flowers. We have roots. there are ma- many different things in the universe. But if you, if, if, if you use that analogy, then the aim so the oneness, that one no-thingness from which sprang the universe, the Ain soph can be viewed as the sap of the tree. Now, let's think about that for a minute. The The source, the single source that has no qualities but it has the infinite intelligence sort of baked into it infinite creativity baked into it and and as it flows and becomes manifest in the universe as the sap flows through the tree buds begin to uh leaves begin to sprout thorns begin to grow and so uh what gershom scholem is saying is that everything came from this single source of nothingness which then manifests into into our world that's the Jew- that's a jewish view of the unity of the universe uh <clears throat> that um uh that 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 I had the sense of during my first experience of letting my mind transcend quiet down and instead of being focused on the leaves and the thorns and in the bark and everything that's out there, when my mind settles down, <clears throat> its attention naturally can go back to that source and by repeating that action on a regular basis every day we we infuse some of that infinity that infinite intelligence that infinite creativity we have an experience of it every day and just like if we wanted to get better at playing the piano if we practiced it every day We would gain muscle memory. It would it would become part of our lives, and so when we do that on a regular basis, experience that transcendence on a regular basis, then that unity, that sense that we all are from the same thing, uh, and the differences are there. They're superficial, simply because we're living in a world of duality, but deep down, uh, we are we 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 share the same essence.
0: This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm happy to be talking with David Lieberman, the the author of the new book Transcendental Judaism. And we're really talking about right now about this uh sense of oneness and the what 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 really um strikes me on this note is that we have uh sort of this um battle going on between science and religion slash spirituality on this topic because many of the leaders not only current leaders in religion and spirituality but also this the source authors uh, the 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 source religious figures had some sort of spiritual experience that connected them with a higher power and it 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 pervades it pervades religion and so but then you then you have science saying well we can't measure that that sense of the divine we don't we can't bring you into a laboratory and hook up sort of tubes and wires to your brain and and record the spiritual experience, I think it's been attempted, but no but no scientist that I'm aware of is is convinced that this sense of the divine is has scientific validity on the other hand, for those quote unquote um scientists who do experience this this sense of the divine, and there's quite a few all of a sudden, bells go off, and they're like everybody else say, "Wow." Um, I didn't realize that there was another aspect to experience. Uh, I thought that everything was just, you know, um, gears and pulleys and, and ball bearings and screws and nuts. I didn't realize that there's this whole other world out there. And you have a lot of people who, if they're not fully converted, then at least they're more empathetic to this other sense of the world. Taking this one step further, and I do think this is, um, extremely important is that the hard problem of consciousness, which we, which I've talked about before on this show. I think I talked about it last week. In fact, is, you know, how, uh, consciousness arises from the gray matter of the brain. So how does something like this, this, this internal experience of yourself, awareness of the world, of spirituality arise from the gray matter of the brain and the answer my answer is it doesn't it can't and and so you have materialistic scientists trying to explain either explain away spirituality or somehow when they get to that ephemeral topic they will talk about oh it must have come from the the neurons we don't really understand how complicated this this is and and someday we're gonna have a supercomputer that's going to put it all together and neurons are going to explain all this so it really is an amazing um sort of phenomena to me uh but i one thing that i've um focused on is we need more scientists having spiritual experiences
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so
0: so it really is um because you know you started off your um, the discussion you're talking about what led you to, to write the book and, you know, this, this, the, the words jumping off the page and this connection. And, and I have to say, I don't know what, you know, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people. Most people have had some kind of experience, you know, not exactly the same, but you're right. You know, it's really amazing how many people, they, but people, but we don't talk about it.
1: They don't talk about it because they, they don't have words for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it may or may not connect with their religion. Uh, yeah. And the other thing is it feels so natural. It feels so right that it doesn't ring a bell of concern with them. It's right. like, oh, finally, you know. Right. Uh, i'm coming right. home or something like right. that. Right. Now if i may i want to pick up on something you said that i think is very very uh uh insightful. Uh, and that is, you talked about uh um, leaders of religions and not just uh uh modern ones but ancient ones. You yeah. know, they had a spiritual experience somehow oh, whether they were sitting you know in uh in a cave or under a banyan tree or you know whatever they were doing right. and they said ah this is something the 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 experience and the situation around this that led me to this experience is wonderful and I'd love to share that with people right and but then what happened was it became a kind of exclusive uh, set of experiences that they thought had to be followed and shared with people right and i'm saying as you are saying that ex that is not in my opinion an exclusive set of experiences it's that person's set of experiences and when I go back to Gershom Scholem's analogy about the Ein Sof uh, as, as the source and all the various different parts of a tree, um, <clears throat> any experience we have can take us back to the source, because the source is at the root, so to speak, of any experience we have. Right. So, if one religion or culture had a sage who felt, due to a certain set of circumstances, a great truth back to the source through a series of commandments that needed to be followed, that is one path back that is enriching and sends people back to the source if another person another sage was sitting out in nature and sort of communing with the wind and the and the stars and the earth uh like our say our native americans right they found that that series of experiences took them back to that sense of oneness, then all that does is enhance, uh build more bridges, <laughs> give more cultures different ways to connect back to the oneness. Right. Right. And, and uh, I'm not going to go on and on and no, on. But no. different cultures find their own ways back they're not exclusive they're additive and they're beautiful and they all take us back to the oneness
0: right right and the more i i uh read about this think about it i just think that we are we are we are children of spirituality we are we are young we're 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 learning oh yes working through our differences uh the Because I do think there's different levels here. I, I don't want to get, I mean, um, part of the problem in these kinds of discussions is that the vocabulary may move into what some would think to be a new age kind of of uh, hocus pocus. Um, but there's no doubt that there is a, you know, increased understanding of who we are over time. Uh, it may take a long time, but I do think that ultimately, and, you know, I'm, I'm an idealist, obviously, but is that, you know, the different religions, I'll, will start pointing to the same, same practice, same points and everything, you know, over time. Uh, there, there's truly an understand, an understanding of the one God. Uh, and, you know, there's different paths to that, to that, ta- to that goal um and i think i personally think the story of the jews is a beautiful is you know it's an amazing it's an amazing story um but clearly times are still rough and and there there's a a lot to do your your book like um it's it's interesting that um a couple a different whether they're scientists or whether they're um sort of new age thinkers, but, you know, but meditation is playing a bigger and bigger role in this. And uh, I know that, you know, you do a very nice job of saying in your book of saying this, this is, this was my path. I've done this for a long time. The way I do it might not be for everybody. Here's some things to look at. Um, but I, I think we have to talk about sort of how does that normal person the person who's struggling with understanding this, um, how can that person use meditation to sort of to try to experience this for themselves?
1: Okay. Let me, as quickly as I can, uh, explain, just touch on uh, a couple different types of meditations the type of meditation that i'm talking about in my book is a type of meditation that facilitates this experience of transcendence transcending of course just means going beyond we're going we're not looking out at the trees the leaves uh we're we're letting ourselves we're letting our, our minds settle down and experience the sap the oneness so it's a transcending type of meditation. And through the regular experience of that, our minds get used to uh, bringing that sense of the source, the infinite intelligence, the infinite creativity. Now, often in modern times, when someone says meditation, they equate it with a type of meditation that's referred to as mindfulness. And I want to make a distinction here that I am not talking about a mindfulness type of meditation because mindfulness even if you listen to the word mindful we're trying to we're trying to let the mind essentially empty and go beyond our thoughts and emotions back to the source. Mindfulness. And I've done a mindfulness meditation. I've taken class in it. You sit quietly. Thoughts come up. You, you pay a little bit of attention to them. Uh, feelings come up. You may get a realization. Oh, I thought I had this thought of this person or the circumstance at work. It triggered me. Oh maybe i can let that go i you know i can learn something from that and and you can grow through the experience of mindfulness meditation it it can be a very helpful type of meditation but it's not the type of meditation i'm talking about in this book so if if you're talking about um you know how can the regular person um you know it it, it go back to the source and have this experience of oneness uh, mindfulness is not necessarily the fastest path to do that. And as long as we're talking about meditation, there's another type of popular meditation called concentration or focus, where people want to expand a certain quality in their lives. Maybe they want to be more grateful or they, they want to feel more um Uh, courageous or, or something like that. They sit quietly and they think of circumstances or they repeat the word, uh, that they're trying to build up. Uh, and, um, you know, again, as they practice doing that, that particular quality will become stronger in their lives. Just like, again, you practice anything, it'll become stronger in your lives. Even when you practice, going back to the source, that becomes stronger in your life. But concentration meditation isn't transcending because your mind is focused outward on a certain quality. So to help people, uh, you say regular ordinary people who are looking for what I'm talking about in the book, I'm recommending that you go out and find a type of meditation that facilitates transcendence.
0: And that would be you. you you've given uh, references references to it. Transcendental meditation. Is there is there for for the listeners? Is there one book or website that you would point them to? Uh, yes,
1: yes. You don't learn transcendental meditation through a book or a website, but you can learn about it and get personal instruction through www.tm.org. Again, let me say this is not. I'm, I'm not, you know, this is not commercial. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: I, 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 I was, I have been practicing transcendental meditation regularly for 48 years now, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of studies that demonstrate that it does successfully facilitate this experience of transcendence. And if you want to look for other transcending meditations, certainly go ahead and do so.
0: Well, it's it's all part of the end goal, I think, which is to um internalize the the uplifting uh, interpretations, uplifting uh feelings of oneness these internal subjective uh feelings with conduct in the real world. That's really the important thing. And that's, that's, there are a lot of people who, who do this, who, who've done it, whether, whatever religion or whatever spirituality, there's, there's uh, so many beautiful people in the world that have, um, incorporated the, the, the sense. Um, in their lives. And one of my things is that this this should be a principle of science, because as opposed to just something you do in the spare time, because because it is uh, essential to who we are. And um instead of understanding ourselves as sort of robot vehicles, as Richard Dawkins would say, um, we need to. Understand ourselves as spiritual beings. Um, and, th- and I think that things improve if, if we go in that direction. So as we, um, near, near the end here, there's a lot of things we haven't talked about. Um, this, this notion of, you know, we talked about this nothingness. Um, and it, you know, for me, it always goes back to, I mean, I always think about, Aristotle, every time you get into these discussions, which is Aristotle very smart you know genius uh Greek philosopher who analyzed this question and he and he came to conclusion that if you trace causation all the way back, there has to be an unmoved mover um, so, something that moves uh the world without itself being moved, and so what I think he meant was that there has to be some kind of spiritual being at the core of everything that we may never understand. Um, and I don't think we'll ever understand, um, you know, the core, you know, the core of being. But out of that, nothingness came. We know separation came. And, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of religions on the eastern side of of life, the uh, eastern side of the world, believe in that that's the true reality, that, you know, they sort of denigrate the physical world and want to only experience the oneness. I believe you you're where I'm at with this, which is that separation is essential because... Otherwise, what what exactly is life? So, do you just want to say a couple of things about non-duality, um, and your thoughts on that?
1: At different levels of reality, non-duality can be said to be n- non-existent. In other words, people will say, you know, the the real truth is in is in the unity, and it's a uh, uh, it's a fantasy uh, that. Um, uh, you know duality is a fantasy and but you've talked about you know qu- you know quantum mechanics quantum physics a- at different levels of reality um uh different truths are different yeah. uh and and so uh, uh um duality is very is very real you know as i say in in, in the book when i was working in my workshop and and and, and you know and the hammer hit my uh uh my finger you know um <laughs> you know the yeah. duality became very you know became very real to me and yeah. so what the 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 universe that we live in it just it it has it has the it has the it has the quality of duality And and i'm looking down here if i can find it very quickly uh Uh, here, uh, and I know we're coming very much to the end, but I'm going to quote a rabbi, Rabbi Schnur Zalman of Liadi. He's referred to as the Alta Rabbi. Uh, he's the founder of, uh, of, of Chabad Hasidism. And I'm not going to go into all of that. Uh, but, but, and he, and he wrote a book called the Tanya. And he said, the purpose of the creation of the worlds from no thingness, from nothingness into thingness was that they be transformed from thingness to nothingness. The in other words, the purpose of, of coming out from nothing, then to experience the beauty and the diversity uh that that all that infinite intelligence gives us the purpose of that is then to tie it back and realize at the source that it's all oneness and that's where the circle comes and that's, and that's an ancient Jewish teaching that I'd like to leave you with on the, on the topic of duality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way to put a, a cap on the conversation because I, I do think that's what's been missing in understanding some, some of these, uh, spiritual teachings, which is that you, you, it's sort of, you go around, you, uh, separateness is essential to life, but mm-hmm. the, the sep, the separated beings have to understand they come from the same source and have to live their lives with that, um, deep thought in their minds, which, ha- which happens to be a natural thought. This is, Philip Camella, this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Uh, pick up David's book, uh, Transcendental uh, Judaism. It's really a good read for Jews and non-Jews alike. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit
1: thecollapseofmaterialism.com.